Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode A Novel Approach to Broadway History. My guest is author Laura Frankos, whose delightful and entertaining new book is titled Broadway Revival, and it's subtitled What If Gershwin Had Lived? Even though this is the first work of fiction that I featured on this podcast, as you will hear, Broadway Revival is filled with fascinating and meticulously researched Broadway history. One of the greatest joys of this novel is that it allows all of us the opportunity to go back in time and experience the legendary Broadway musicals of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, at least vicariously through the eyes of the story's protagonist, David Greenbaum. Other central characters include George Gershwin, Cole Porter, Vincent Humans, Kurt Vile, Richard Rogers, and Larry Hart. And in fact, an alternate subtitle for the book could have been The Time Traveler's Boyfriend, Larry Hart. Laura is also the author of the Broadway musical quiz book, the mystery novel St. Oswald's Niche, numerous stories in fantasy, mystery, and science fiction magazines, and she also contributed a chapter to the recent book, 50 Key Stage Musicals. Here we go! Welcome, Laura Frankos. It's so great to have you here on Broadway Nation to talk about your novel, Broadway Revival. I am very thrilled to be here. I had a great time reading this book, and I think all Broadway fans will enjoy it. It's certainly something very unusual, and I've never had an author of a work of fiction on here before, but this one seems really appropriate for the Broadway Nation audience. Well, that's certainly my hope. I do think that the people who listen to your podcast are my target audience. There isn't a whole lot of overlap between science fiction and theater, but those are both two of my passions, and that's how I ended up here. So let's connect those dots. What is the story that you've written? The story of Broadway Revival is that of David Greenbaum. He is a young actor-songwriter in the 2070s. He's just getting his career started with some decent roles on Broadway, and his husband has just died from the latest designer drug craze. He's depressed, so he decides he couldn't make a difference in Ramon's life, 
but he can hijack his brother's time machine, go back to the 1930s with modern medicine, and make a difference in the lives of a number of Broadway greats that we lost, first and foremost being George Gershwin, whom we lost at the age of 38 to a brain tumor. What happens if you go back? I mean, we're working on drugs for treating tumors right now. Hopefully by the 2070s, we'll have even better ones. David goes back, insinuates himself into the golden age of Broadway, and starts to get to know the fantastic talents that lived back then, finds himself in amongst them, and attempts to see if he can divert fate. On the other hand, his brother, who is part of an international consortium that controls time travel, primarily as research tools. He works for Yale University and is a time traveler through their auspices. His specialty is labor history. He decides this is not a good thing. That uh, My brother has hijacked the time machine and who knows what damage he's doing back there. And what ends up happening is they discover that as David is making considerable changes back in 1934 in New York, it's starting to have ripples and there are starting to be alternate timelines developing. We have kind of parallel stories going on in the novel with David making his way in the mid-century New York Broadway scene and his brother trying to chase after him and see if he can find him because they don't know what his agenda is. They don't know what he's doing back there, just that things are changing. And so it's a bit of a cat and mouse game there. So in writing this book, you had to do several incredible feats of imagining. You had to imagine what life is like 50 years in the future, and then you had to imagine what it would be like to time travel back to the 1930s, something we talk about on this podcast all the time because everyone has their time travel musicals that they can't wait for the time machine to be invented to go back and be at the opening night of Girl Crazy, which is actually probably the top of my time travel desires. And you do that in this book. Talk about living your vicarious fantasies through this character, because I assume that was part of the appeal in writing. Oh, yes. That was one of the delicious bits of fun, imagining not just seeing those classic shows through my protagonist's eyes, but then coming up with the ones that end up happening because he's been meddling in the lives of these songwriters. Just to make sure the audience understands, the songwriters live much longer than they lived in the world that we know. So they write shows that we don't know about, and you had to create those shows, at least in your head. And it's quite fun to hear you talk about what songs were in them, what other people got to work on them. Give us a couple examples of that. Like, what does Gershwin get to do that he didn't get to do in real life? Okay, well, since he died in our world at the age of 38, there were any number of projects that right then he was working on. And so that was my leaping off point, as with the other songwriters whose lives are extended in Broadway revival. I took projects that he was working on, like one called Lice of Lammy, that was from a Lynn Riggs work. There were other things later on, like, because I took Ira's view into consideration, too, because I figure George would continue to work closely with his brother. They end up doing Around the World in 80 Days, which was a longtime favorite novel of Ira's. Those were kind of my leaping off points. But then I got to thinking, okay, well, what about other things that came out after, in our world, Gershwin's death that he would have now been seeing? And the one I immediately glommed onto was Young Man with a Horn. Which was a novel. We know that as yes. a movie, but I actually didn't know it was a big hit novel at the time. Yes, that's a novel by Dorothy Baker 
speaker with a tragic jazz playing trumpeter. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is perfect for if Gershwin had seen this novel as when he saw the novel Porgy, he'd immediately think this needs musical treatment. And so I went with that and then had great fun trying to decide who was going to be cast in that and picking out things like Burgess Meredith ends up playing the lead in that one and contemplating who else could go into it. It was a great delight. And of course, you get to use your protagonist to encourage Gershwin to go in these directions. And of course, he knows the entire history, at least as far as we know it, of the Broadway musical and then some. So he encourages these writers to maybe go in an advanced direction beyond what they might have done on their own. Yes, definitely. The go-to money-raising method for time travelers is if you know the results of sporting events. You can bet on the sporting events because you know the outcome and you can make a fortune that way. Well, here's my protagonist. What does he know? He knows theater history. So he's immediately sitting down and going, okay, I'm going to invest in the man who came to dinner. I'm going to back anything goes because I know these are going to be hits and they're going to keep giving me solid income for as long as shows that I'm familiar with keep being produced. Because one of the issues I had to deal with was to decide exactly how much of a ripple effect he was going to have. The longer David Greenbaum is hanging around in mid-century Broadway, he's making changes there. And so I'll have to go, okay, if Vivian Seagal is in our world, close, close friend of Lawrence Hart's, she's playing in the revised version of Connecticut Yankee. Well, if I have her playing in a Lawrence Hart show that wasn't written in our world, what does that do? I kind of worried at times because I'd sit there and I'd be looking at maps of New York and theaters and going, so-and-so is in this show. And if I take them out of this show and I have them in a fictional show of my own, you know, what does that do with that? Eventually it got to the point where I thought, okay, I can't do too much of this or this novel is going to end up as long as Les Miserables. And I mean, Victor Hugo's not the uh, Broadway version. Either way, it's long. Mm -hmm. I found that fascinating. Obviously it was a puzzle that you had to figure out, even just in terms of what theaters would be occupied when shows that maybe were flops become hits or vice versa. Without a song, the day would never end. Without a song, the road would never bend. When things go wrong, a man ain't got a friend. Without a song, that field of corn. That field of corn would be deserted now. A man is born, but he's no good, no how, without a song. Let's talk about the songwriters that your protagonist affects, besides Gershwin, which I assume was the major inspiration for this, yes. because everybody imagines what else would Gershwin have written. Who else does he interact with and create longevity for that we didn't get to have? Well, his first target is Vincent Humans. Vincent Humans, best known to audiences today as the composer of Tea for Two from No No Nanette and Flying Down to Rio, the film with Fred and Ginger. He died of tuberculosis. Tuberculosis is incredibly easy to cure. Now we're developing superbugs with tuberculosis, which are harder. But back in 1934, it was just standard tuberculosis, but they didn't have a cure for it. People who had it, who had bad lungs, they would try to find mountain air and hope that that would cure them. And so in 1934, my 
Hero, who has researched all of his targets to a fairly well, knows perfectly well that Vincent Humans is going to be hanging around, taking in the mountain air and trying to hope his tuberculosis improves in Colorado. And he trucks off there and manages to finagle an invitation. And that's his first target. He tries to find a way, how can he get his antibiotics from 2079 into Vincent Humans in 1934? And then what happens after that? And Vincent Humans in your novel goes on to write several shows that we didn't get to actually see, which is fascinating. And who else? Who else? I am a huge Kurt Weill fan. And Kurt Weill had in the 1940s this incredible stretch where he did six different shows in essentially six different subgenres and was working on Huckleberry Finn when he had a heart attack and died at the age of 50. This is a terrible tragedy because he was that that productive just in that decade, how much further could he have gone? I'm infuriated when I read music critics who dismiss Vile's Broadway output as somehow inferior to what he did in Europe before he had to run from the Nazis and ended up in America. His Broadway output was genius. I started thinking, how can we prevent a guy who has high blood pressure, is a heart attack risk? How can my hero keep him alive? Well, that took a little bit more finagling. That was one of the issues that I spent talking with my own doctor. I had to do a considerable amount of medical research for that. I don't presume that my plans are entirely foolproof. Uh, I'm sure there are probably some scientists out there who can knock holes in it. But hey, you know, it's fiction. (laughs) Exactly. Then, David, your protagonist, becomes the producer of that Huckleberry Finn. Yes. Which opens on Broadway and becomes a big hit. And who else? He doesn't stop there. He continues on. Well, okay. All Broadway buffs know what happened to Cole Porter when he went for a horseback ride one day in Long Island. He deliberately picked a very balky, feisty horse, which he shouldn't have done. Well, what are you going to do about that, David Greenbaum, time traveler? Is there a way to prevent Cole Porter from getting on that horse? And he figures out a way, which changes Cole Porter's life. And I thought this was really fascinating to see the unexpected consequences of this. It does increase Cole Porter's life, but it causes other things to happen. He gets divorced from his wife, which didn't happen in real life, which makes sense because, as you say in the book, he was on the verge of divorce before he had the accident. And that sort of turned things around with his relationship with Linda. But then I don't want to give away all the secrets of the book, but he doesn't end up writing some shows that we know he did write because of what David has done in trying to help Cole Porter. Broadway Revival is what is known in the science fiction field as an alternate history. And in fact, I am incredibly proud to state that it was a finalist for the 2021 Sidewise Award, which is given for Best Alternate History. It didn't win, but yes, indeed, it is an extreme honor to be nominated. What happens in an alternate history is you take an event or someone's life and make change in it, and then you extrapolate. And so I had to sit there and look at every action that David Greenbaum did in the 1930s and onward, and then extrapolate the changes. Which is wonderful from a story standpoint, because it puts him into real dilemmas about whether what he's doing is having the consequences that he thought it was going to, and what is he giving to the world, but what is he also depriving the world of by doing this? And the closest relationship he has is with another of the most famous songwriters of all time. That was, I think, the most difficult thing in the entire writing of Broadway Revival, was trying to get into the troubled genius mind that was Larry Hart's. 
a complex man, a troubled man, a wonderful man, one who had a very difficult life. And that was the single hardest thing. And what made it so difficult? Well, there were a number of challenges. I'm a middle-aged straight woman. Larry Hart was a gay songwriter, gay lyricist, librettist. There's that challenge. And I'm fairly mentally stable, I think. I'm not an alcoholic. I felt that was a kind of mindset that was hard to get into. That was a challenge that I spent the longest on, trying to get Larry Hart right. Was there a research problem there as well? Because in my own research, it seems to me that what we've been told about him is often highly colored by the people who got to tell the story. Oh, well, that's the case all the time. I'm a historian by training. I passed my doctoral exams at UCLA in ancient history and then ended up, instead of writing my dissertation, having three kids and writing my first novel. I never finished it, but I do know how to do research. You have to delve into absolutely everything that's there. The research for Broadway Revival took years. My library is enormous. I basically wallowed in everything there was about the mid-century Broadway scene, especially all of the figures that were there, and reading absolutely everything that they said in contemporary times, not just people looking back and saying things, oh yeah, Larry Hart was like this, blah, 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 but what quips and stuff were coming up in the newspapers and magazines of that era. I think that's crucial because although he clearly was a very troubled guy, what we hear Richard Rogers say about him and some of his other contemporaries, I think doesn't necessarily tell the story of his personality. I think you show us a different side of Larry Hart in your book to a great extent. And I always look at that quote that Oscar Hammerstein said, he always remembers him being happy and smiling and laughing and being joyous which doesn't jive with so many other things that we've been told about him. I think there very definitely was a public persona and then a private one. You have this man who spent his entire life living with his mother and was devastated when she died in early 1943 and, in fact, slept in the same room with his brother until his brother Teddy got married just a few years before that, sometime in the late 30s. So her loss was just shocking to him. And then one of the other things that happens in real time is He's at this terrible stage. He's seeing his longtime partner, Richard Rogers, having the biggest success ever with Oklahoma. And while he still had projects and things going on, he was very much alone. And his rather corrupt lawyer accountant forced him to get a new apartment farther away from the theater district. I think all of that really contributed to the spiral that marked the end of his days in 1943. And my protagonist, knows this too and is going to do everything in his power to try to stop it. Which is really interesting because obviously your protagonist knows everything you know, which puts him in a position to not only analyze these people, but assist them. And Larry Hart was alone, but in your book, he's not alone because your protagonist actually becomes Larry Hart's lover, which I thought was one of the most surprising aspects of the book. I was a little like, what? What happened here? Talk a little bit about that plot development. Did you know that going into it? First of all, I have to know, do you think I pulled it off? Oh, you totally pulled it off. Okay, thank you. You totally pulled it off, but it is a challenging, Larry Hart is a challenging person to fall in love with. Yes. (laughs) For so many reasons. I think a lot of what happens is sheer proximity. David Greenbaum sees how to keep Larry Hart from spiraling out the way he does is to be on the scene with him as often as he can to deflect the various dark episodes as much as he can. And the more you're around someone, the more the opportunities are to get close. And I just sort of saw that happening and tried to convey it. 
This can't be love because I feel so well. No sobs, no sorrows, no sighs. This can't be love, I get no dizzy spell. My head is not in the skies. My heart does not stand still, just hear it beat. This is too sweet to be loved. Don't go away, Broadway Nation will be right back. Because I feel so well, but still I love to look in your eyes. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make everyday delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Let's talk about this research because I do think one of the joys for me in reading this book was the level of detail that you're able to go into, both about these specific characters, just while we're talking about Larry Hart, the details you provide us about the other people in his circle, including his mother, his brother, his accountant, the sort of infamous Doc Bender. Again, I always wonder how much of what we've been told about Doc Bender is colored by homophobia and other things, you know, people who didn't like what he was doing, and probably none of us would like what he was doing. But because we're hearing about it from Richard Rogers, did that make him more of a villain in what we've been told than what he was in 
reality. So I'm interested in just how you did the research on those minor characters, which are obviously even harder to research than somebody like Larry Hart, and then what you decided about them. I basically read everything. I read everything that I possibly could get my hands on, writing down quips that Larry and his brother Teddy and his sister-in-law Dorothy said, for example, about their longtime housekeeper, Big Mary Campbell. I had reams of Big Mary Campbell anecdotes that I could have used. The trick is with any amount of research, it's like an iceberg. You want to just let the top 10% show and not the 90% that you've done underneath. For all of these people, Bender included, there's 90% research that's tucked away in my notebooks, right? right. post-it notes everywhere. Big Mary is another very vibrant character that you create with just a few tiny little scenes that she's in. But we get a sense of really getting to know Larry Hart through these people that are around him. Thank you. Other people that I was really interested in that I didn't know anything about were Joe Gould, who is Mm -hmm. a major presence in your book. Yes. And that's a real person, I'm assuming. Oh, Joe Gould is definitely real. In fact, I highly recommend to you checking out Joseph Mitchell's essays that were written about him that appeared in The New Yorker. And they made a very good film of Joe Gould's life starring Ian Holm a few years ago called Joe Gould's Secret. Excellent film. I do recommend it. Never heard of it. I will check it out. Joe Gould was an odd fellow. He was highly educated. He had graduated from Harvard and he was a fixture in 1930s and 40s Greenwich Village. He was known as the Little Bohemian, the Little Professor. He wrote poetry. He drank lots. He probably had some mental illness. He claimed he could talk to seagulls. He fed seagulls. He fed pigeons. He just was an incredibly colorful character. Here I have to tell all of Broadway Nation that I have been in New York exactly once in my life. That was 2007. My daughter and I went to New York. She was graduating from high school. We toured. I took photographs of many old theaters. I do not know New York the way New Yorkers know New York. So I had to do a ton of New York homework. And I decided right from the get-go that I wanted my protagonist from 2079 to be in a rather historic New York section of the city. And I picked Greenwich Village and was fixating on certain old buildings there that I hoped would still be around by the 2070s. I do thank the various conservation groups in the Greenwich Village area for their excellent research materials. It gave me all sorts of information that I could study the history of these buildings going back to the times that I wanted to start putting characters into them. And I kept all that in the back of my head. I wanted to put him there in a historic area so that then when he goes back to 1934, he picks the same area. And if I have him wandering around in 1934 Greenwich Village, who is he going to run into but this odd fellow? And so I kept having Joe Gould turn up and being just a little bit off, he somehow senses that David Greenbaum is a little bit off. Yeah, he's a little Cassandra there in a way. He sort of sees something, which was interesting and fascinating and also a threat in a way. Mm -hmm create some tension for you. Yes, authors are constantly wanting to find ways that they can complicate their characters' lives. One of the earliest things that I came up with is, I'm not going to reveal, is a major devastating plot point. 
I had that early, early on. I said, okay, I'm going to do this to this guy. Well, you did it well. Another character I'll ask you about is Lewis Kessler, mm-hmm. somebody I never heard of. Tell us about Lewis Kessler. Lewis Kessler became Ethel Berman's personal pianist and worked as a rehearsal pianist for Broadway shows. He was redheaded. He was flamboyantly gay. He threw outrageous drag parties. Where I end up bringing him into play is one of those cases where my hero is concerned because his first major gig, he manages to get himself named a rehearsal pianist for Anything Goes, which was great fun to do because I had him there with Ethel Merman and all. Right. He's invited to keep working on Porter and Merman shows, and he decides, no, he doesn't want to do that because he knows, I think it's for Red Hot and Blue, that that's where Lou Kessler and Cole Porter and Ethel Merman all first start getting together. Due to the tragic loneliness of my brow, that's going to be important and so he backs off if you want to thrill me and drill me for your crew sing me a melody that's red hot and blue before you expand on that grand cottage for two sing me a melody that's red hot and blue that turned up in the tons of research that I did. He's a fixture of 30s Broadway, and he worked really closely with Merman for years, decades. And I think you say Cole Porter depended on him for transpositions and sort of musical talent that Cole Porter either didn't have or didn't want to take the time to do. Yes. Very interesting. I've no desire to hear You also obviously really researched the world of New York during the 1930s and the 40s and the 50s, but especially you spend a great deal of time during the 30s and all the theatrical hangouts and Mm -hmm. the bars and the restaurants. What are the places that you have your protagonist go and hang out? Oh, heavens. The barn in Greenwich Village. Yeah, the Village Barn. What is that? This was a place that had old-time country-type trappings. Like hay bales sitting around. Yes, exactly. They had nightly turtle races. They had a band. Naturally, a lot of these restaurants had bands. It was a very homey, folksy place with good, solid fare. 
I think one of the best and most enjoyable rabbit holes that I ended up diving into was just the world of New York restaurants. There's a fabulous link on the New York Public Library website, their digital menus. And I just spent ages wallowing in menus and figuring out where I was going to have my protagonist eat next. And what was he going to eat next? The Bamboo Cafe, which was run by a couple who had actually been in China and came over with their adopted sons and started this Chinese restaurant. Ralph's, which was a big hangout. Rogers and Hart wrote a lot of their shows dining at Ralph's and drinking at Ralph's. And that was on 45th Street? Yes. And you also researched drinks quite a bit. That was a lot of fun. (laughs) What were the popular drinks of the 30s that you have your characters First and foremost is the Bronx Cocktail. Which I've heard of, but what is a Bronx Cocktail? A Bronx Cocktail in the 1930s was the third most popular drink following the Martini and the Manhattan. But today, nobody knows what the heck it is. A Bronx Cocktail involved gin and sweet vermouth and dry vermouth and orange juice. It was developed in the early part of the century. There are competing stories as to its actual origin, but it was hugely popular. And I, in the very first chapter, have my protagonist drinking them at his husband's funeral because it was a drink that his late husband had encountered when he was doing a Jerome Kern festival. It plays a minor role in the Kern musical, Oh Boy, where there's a teetotaling aunt, I believe it was, who ends up drinking a Bronx cocktail because she somehow thinks it's an orangeade or a lemonade. And of course she gets tipsy. And I have my character drinking Bronx cocktail and I researched Bronx cocktails to a fare thee well. Back before COVID, my husband and I traveled a good deal to science fiction conventions and I took it upon myself to do research. We would go to a restaurant and I would say, I would like a Bronx cocktail and the waiter would look at me and go, what? A what? But it's research, so that's tax deductible. I love that. Another thing you go into details of is the Red Scare and how that affected Broadway, which we don't often hear about. We know about how it affected Hollywood, and we know Broadway was somewhat immune to it, but you go into some detail that I thought was really interesting. What was the effect of the anti-communist craze? Oh, it was definitely an effect. One of the things that happened targeting the entertainment industry as a whole was there was a right-wing magazine journal that produced this list. It was called Red Channels in 1950, and they listed about 150 significant figures all throughout entertainment, including a lot of people who were on Broadway, Yip Harburg, Leonard Bernstein, Lena Horne, just lots and lots and lots of them. And I took a look at that when my character was getting up into the 1950s, and I realized, okay, I'm going to have to do something about this. Now, Ira Gershwin himself, in our timeline, had been an early supporter of the Hollywood 10. And in fact, there were a number of people in the Southern California area, most of them Hollywood related, but that's where Ira and his wife settled after George had died. He stayed out there permanently. He loved the warm weather. They formed what they called the Committee for the First Amendment. They spoke out very vehemently against the treatment of the Hollywood 10. And they had one of their first meetings at Ira Gershwin's house. This led to enough suspicion of Ira that in our real life, he was investigated by the Tenney Committee, which was sort of the California state version of the House Committee on on American Activities. And I got to thinking, okay, here we have our timeline. Ira probably was still involved in that. He didn't appear in the Red Channels listing, but I thought, George, George is always a bigger name than Ira. And George, in the 30s, had been friends with a very 
free socialist Mexican artist named David Afaro Siqueiros. And George had a number of his paintings, including one called Proletarian Victim. And he supported a number of other causes in the 30s. George was not particularly political. I think he probably would have stayed that way. At least that's what I'm going with. But these were just things that you did back then. And it was only later, as the Red Scare got stronger and stronger, that people were looking at these connections from the 30s and saying, you were doing that then, you pinko. Right. You must be you know, suspicious. And so I put George on the Red Channels list. And I have George testifying, getting investigated by the House Committee on Un-American Activities. That's actually something that I was considering making a longer and more involved chapter. But by that point, I knew I had to start approaching the finish line because the book was going to be too long. I've worked up a short story version that goes into more detail from George's perspective that I'm hoping I can sell to a magazine somewhere. A little bit more detail on what happened with the testimony. And of course, you make that painting become a major plot piece in your story as well, quite interestingly. I had to do art history. I had to do labor history because, as I said, David's brother, Nate, is a labor historian. So when he goes on his time travel trips, the things he's doing in the 1930s, he's investigating strikes and labor unrest, things like that. Which brings the brothers together at the opening night of The Cradle Will Rock. Yes. And I have to say, when I got to that chapter, I thought, oh, not another account of the opening of The Cradle Will Rock. And you totally made it more interesting than any other version of it. Thank you. So talk about that, because that's another case where you got to go back in time to the opening of The Cradle Rock. What was your favorite part of that trip back in time? I think for me, it was the well-known story of Gene Rosenthal finding the piano. For any of those out there in Broadway Nation who do not know the details of the opening of The Cradle Will Rock, they had to move to a different theater because the federal government was shutting them down at the venue where they were at. They were going to go to a different one, but they needed a piano for Mark Blitzstein to play his score. She finds a piano, and I managed to work by protagonist in there helping with the piano. And I was able to use that later on because there's another incident involving a piano in this book. And that's one of the reasons why I think I probably had great difficulty trying to get this sold to real publishers and had to go the solo route. I have an entire chapter involving Jerome Kern's piano. I'm sure that the major publishers would go, who wants to read about moving pianos? But I was pleased that I was able to link Jerome Kern's piano with the piano from The Cradleable Rock. Yeah, I thought that was very inventive. I would love to hear you talk about these unwritten shows that you got to imagine. Not only the ones that are written by these creators, but ones from the future that are going to happen after our time. What was your process of just imagining what Broadway is like from now for the next 50 years? One of the things that I hate seeing, usually in science fiction on television, they're showing characters in the future, and they all seem to be obsessed with 20th or 20 first century American culture. And so I do have a character who's obsessed with theatrical history. So yes, of course he knows and studies even more about the era into which he's going to time travel. But I also wanted to make it clear that there's a whole set of 50 years of Broadway history that 
still is going to unfold. And so I was coming up with names of playwrights and composers, shows that David would have been in and his niece, who was a budding theater buff about to go off college, that she'd be performing in, at her high school. Because I didn't want everybody in 2079 to be fixated on the golden age of Broadway. I mean, Broadway evolves. Broadway keeps on going. And so I was trying to come up with things. I alluded to that there are things called net shows, which I'm thinking would be some sort of a combination between theater and internet broadcast. I envisioned that Sardis is still around and to keep going has a Sardis club, which is sort of both physical and social media linked. I just was trying to come up with all sorts of stuff like that. And right at the beginning, I want to let the reader know where we are. And I have David's niece and her best friend attending a production of Blythe Spirit with Anne Hathaway, who was then in her 90s playing Madame Marcotti. <laughs> That's going to immediately let any theater buff today know, oh, okay. <laughs> I allude to Chris Pine dying at age 87 playing King Lear on stage. I did goof. I predicted Phantom would go another 10 years, but now if anybody calls me on it, I can say, oh, well, that was a typo. <laughs> I wrote 2033, but that was supposed to be 2023. I did note that, but of course, who would have known? Yeah. I think your prediction was very reasonable without knowing COVID was going to happen. Yes. I did make some post-COVID revisions. I have David going to get himself immunized against smallpox, which was still a concern in in the 1930s. And of course, you know, he wouldn't have had a smallpox immunization in 2079. Right. But I allude to COVID at that point too. Summing this up for everybody, what do you want people to take away from this book? What do you hope people will come away with? I hope they will enjoy vicariously traveling back in time with my protagonist and seeing the changes and trading banter with Oscar Levant and Ladelania and the like. This is my love letter to Broadway. It's my tribute to the greats that we lost far too soon to sit down and imagine what would have happened had those lives been extended? What treasures could we have? And I tried to come up with them. And do you have a sequel in mind? Will David be going back in time or his niece more likely be going back in time to save Michael Bennett or anybody? Do not have a sequel in mind. Bennett would be great. It would be an easy thing to save Jonathan Larson. Yeah. I mean, but I do not have any plans right now. I am still wallowing thoroughly in the 1930s, though. One of the things that I started doing after I finished Broadway Revival was working on a nonfiction survey of the 1935-36 season, both plays and musicals. You have the Lunts doing two shows. You have Corky and Bess. It's a fantastic season. And I started working on that. And the chapter on Rogers and Hart's Jumbo mm -hmm. ballooned to over 20,000 <laughs> words. And I thought, this is telling me something. So right now I'm trying to see if I can do a book just on Jumbo alone. I have some short fiction that I'm sending out that's science fiction and fantasy, but there's definitely theater links to them. And that's kind of what I'm doing now. Fantastic. And those will be published in like science fiction periodicals? Yes. Well, I hope you will let us know when those are happening, because I think after reading this book, people will want to absolutely see what else you've been up to and see the other kinds of spinoffs that you're doing. I am in another book that appeared earlier this year, and this is, again, Gershwin-related. There is a new book out this spring from Rutledge called 50 Key Stage Musicals, mm -hmm. edited by Rob Schneider. I was invited to take part, and the editors had already made up their own list, so do not criticize me if you have quibbles. Why isn't such and such on this list? But I was invited to take my choice of most of them, and my favorite musical of all is Sweeney Todd, and I was tempted to do Sweeney, but there was of the I Sing, mm -hmm. and I said, nope, I got to stay with Georgia. 
Children, Ira. And so I wrote the chapter on that. Fantastic. I have not read that book yet. Oh, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. And uh, Rob has also done a podcast. He interviews all the authors. Which is also on the Broadway Podcast Network. Yes. Yeah, I'm hoping to have Rob on the show as well. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been delightful to talk with you about Broadway Revival, a really unusual, fascinating, full of history read. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been great fun being here. It seems we stood and talked like this before. We look at each other in the same way then. But I can't remember where or when. If you enjoy this podcast, I feel certain that you will also enjoy joining our Broadway Nation Facebook group, where you'll find daily postings of images, videos, articles, and links that relate to and enhance each and every episode. Just Google Broadway Nation Facebook group and join the more than 2,000 other fans of Broadway Nation. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, to KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.